Welcome to Life After Business, the podcast, where I bring you all the information you need to exit your company and explore what life can be like on the other side. This is Ryan Tansom, your host, and this is episode five. Hey everybody, welcome back. I'm really excited for today's episode. I interview a very good friend of mine named Conrad Braun, who was the past owner and president of Badger Electric. And Conrad and I have got a very interesting past because I actually met him a couple years back when I misbooked my flight to Colorado for a ski trip. And I was in a business group with Conrad and I've only known him for about a week and a half. And I was explaining my stupid story about how I completely screwed up the weeks of when I was supposed to meet all my friends in Colorado. Conrad looked over at me and he goes, why don't you join me? It was him and his brother and his nephew. So I got to know Conrad quite a bit over that trip. And the story that he has with his company, Badger Electric, that he owned is a really good one. And he goes into many of the details about how he bought it grew it and then sold it and what he's been doing afterwards. There's a lot of good golden nuggets in this podcast, in this interview. So enjoy. I appreciate everybody tuning back in. And without further ado, my interview with Conrad. Thank you for coming on Life After Business, Conrad. I appreciate you taking some of the time. So just tell me a little bit about how you decided to work with Badger and you kind of got a really interesting past. Tee us up with how you started at the company and uh, walk us a little bit through it. Well, oddly, uh, I came to the company in a very unusual way. I had uh, sold this company a computer system and through the uh, sales process and post sales process, I got to know the owners and um, had a long-term dream of um, getting involved with a company where I could take an ownership position. And we began talking about that possibility. They offered me uh, a position of employment with the idea that over a longer period of time, I would become a shareholder and eventually buy the business from them. They did not understand the complexity of selling a business nor did I understand the complexity of buying a business, but they were honorable people. And um, as it turned out, I went to work for them. Is that the, is, when you were selling the computer system, is that when you were working, was it, I, was it Xerox or IBM? Xerox Corporation. Because that's when you were working with Mike, um, what's Mike's last name? That is correct. Mike, so, so you were selling the, the, the ERP or the accounting packages for the, the companies similar in the manufacturing industry? Absolutely. So, um, God, I can't think of Mike's last name right now, but he's kind of turned into a sales guru. Oh, I've got some timers right now. I can't think of it. <laughs> uh, Anyways, but so, yeah. so you were selling the, selling the software packages to companies in that industry? This is back in the days... This is before many computers, pal. This was back in the day <laughs> I'm sharing. I, I went to uh, sell these guys a system, and I got so involved in getting it installed and got to learn their business. I went to work for them, and 90 days after I went to work for them, I really uncovered that the, the company, was you know, they bought a computer system to solve a lot of problems, 
and found out that they were literally technically bankrupt. Is that because when you're going, when you're implementing it, you're probably pretty heavily digging into the financials and understanding a lot of the intricacies of the P&L statement, right? Because of most, mostly understanding their uh, their processes, but in the process of that, uh, they sent me down to meet the banker. The, the banker had told me that they were a, a classified loan, and were, uh, but they had not yet communicated that to the owners. And I went back, and uh, the owner told me, "Oh, go down to the bank. We've got an unlimited line of credit." Where they had no credit left, the two owners weren't really speaking another, I went back to him and said, you either need to put me in charge or fire me. And his response to me was, God has answered my prayers. You are now, <laughs> you are now in charge. And I began to put the first business plan together. And how, what was the time frame from when you had started as an employee until that conversation? 90 days. No kidding. Huh? So it was, it was unbelievable. Their, uh, their daughter, that was a St. St. Patrick's Day, March 17th of uh, 1982, I believe. And uh, I told them, make sure you take care of the payables. And they paid every payable in the system and sent the checks out, overdrawing the bank by uh, bank account by hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars. And so I, I went down to the bank, found out that not only wasn't the bank going to add any to the line of credit, but they're getting ready to call the loan. So I jumped on the phone and I, uh, I went back, I had my conversation with the owner says, God has answered my prayers. I jumped on an airplane and went and visited the four largest people that we'd written checks to and told them the good news was the check was in the mail. The bad news, it was uh, that the checks were going to bounce so that we wouldn't bounce every check uh, that they owed to everybody. There were probably a hundred checks that went out that day. That's and called cash flow management right there. It's called cash flow management. <laughs> so how so, did you, so you got in the, you got on the plane and you just immediately went out to the, the four went out to meet, met, met the four biggest credit managers. One of them was, was the Square D Corporation in Ohio or in uh, Chicago. And also the first other person in Chicago was a gal by the name of Bernice Feltz. She was the GE credit manager. I jumped on a plane and then went down from there, went down to Atlanta and spoke to the guy from Lithonia Lighting. I'll never forget his Southern draw. I kind of explained what happened. I said, my God, son, I've never heard such a story, but it must, I've never heard such a story. It must be true. <laughs> and then went up to Raritan, New Jersey and met with TNB. And my only promise to him was the check's already bad. You need to work with me for another 30 days. Don't shut us down. And I'm giving you my word that next month you get paid and nobody else does. So when you're having these conversations, do you have the plan already in your head of how you're going to approach it? Or you working? Hell no, baby. I was on a wing and a prayer. <laughs> I was just buying time. And I knew that we, you can't have checks bouncing to every single creditor that you have. So it was kind of, okay, who were the four biggest ones? And told them that, Next month they would get paid first, so they, you know, they were in for a dollar. I was asking them to go in for another dime. Mm -hmm. you know, give me another thirty days, and thirty days from now I will be back to you with a written business plan of what we are going to do. So walk me through what's going through your head when you're 
sitting down in front of the pad and the paper or your computer when you're going to start that business plan? Where what I was really thinking is I really need to get fired and go back and get my job at Xerox. But uh, <laughs> that didn't pan out. Know, that, did, that didn't pan out. Uh, I figure I need to I you know I need to get fired quickly or find a way to make this work. And the first thing you need is a little bit of time. And so I went and I created time. At that point, you got nothing on the hook, right? I got nothing on the hook other than I just walked away from a big job and a big paycheck. And I've taken a big pay cut and I'm sitting there thinking, oh, Christ. Uh, so it was really, I went back and got the time and I had an accounting background. And I'd just gotten back from a, financial, a GE financial management school. And this is back in the days when it was before Lotus 1, 2, 3. Spreadsheets, which are really common today, did not accept, exist except on big computers. And oddly, it was taught by three professors from Ohio State University where I'd gone to school. And I mean, I'd literally gotten back from this thing a week before this occurred to the business. And they taught me financial modeling. Hmm. And with that, I ended up building a um, uh, on a very simple model on one eight and a half by 11 piece of paper, kind of the key assets and the key liabilities, an income statement and a fund flow, and sat there and started building a model of how to rescue this business. And within kind of put this thing down and then went um, a month later, paid the three vendors on time and did a couple of unique things. I, I went back to the largest vendor and asked them to put what we owed them on a 24-month note. Gave Any kind them, of interest or something that you specified? Yeah, I don't even remember what the interest rate was at the time. Um, but it was so that we could start cash discounting. The, the reason they went along with it is they didn't really have another good choice. Because they wanted to get paid. <laughs> they, wanted to get, they wanted to get paid, and they're figuring the old management team wasn't getting it done. And I came up with a plan where I sat there and said, we're going to go close this one operation that was, these guys had been operating it, but they didn't have a set of books on the thing. And I think they were, you know, it appeared that they were operating well below the break-even point of the business. And that enabled me to, so we shut a branch down, did you have a bunch of inventory that you were able to? Had a bunch of inventory that we were able to bring back into the business and, and use, a bunch of receivables that we were able to collect and completely get our computer system implemented and get, you know, one of the issues they had is they, they were so slow in invoicing, I couldn't tell you how much the backlog was. We used to measure it with a ruler. They had billing <laughs> that was being done post-sale, and so they may have had several a million dollars worth of receivables that were not yet billed. And so it was basically create some cash, get a computer system in, start doing transactions a day and a day. I mean, this was not rocket science, but this is in the back of the days. You know, they had... They had, a, they had a, it was balancing it like a checkbook almost. It was kind of like a checkbook, exactly. So when you're doing all this stuff, did you, I mean... Obviously, with some self-interest, when you're sitting down, did you have any idea what you were going to ask for the business, or was it just pretty much they, you know, plopped it in your lap and said, "Just save us, give us whatever you think we can"? Or how did? Well, no, there was no talk of ownership at this point. I mean, the ownership had not yet taken place. 
So the first thing that I did was really create credibility with the bank, create credibility with the vendors, and basically the business, and finally tell the financially tell the truth. So the financial statements showed up that we lost over a quarter of a million dollars that year, and yet by tightening things up and by getting the bills done on time and by actually reporting to the bank an honest inventory, which they'd never known how to do, the financial statements showed that we had lost a quarter of a million dollars, but I also reduced bank debt and improved cash flow by $750,000. Wow. So what was the top line revenue around this time? About $5 million. As we're proceeding, you know, we still haven't made any money, uh, in fact, but we were getting financial statements out on time. We were producing accurate and timely financial statements. We created uh, cash flow by uh, improve by recognizing assets that in fact existed by billing on time, started managing the inventories better, created cash, which was all used to reduce debt, either with creditors or with the bank. And that created confidence in my ability to manage that business. So what's the, what's the, the attitudes or the perspective perspectives of the other owners at this point? I mean, are they looking at you like a savior or are they kind of, because I've, I've seen other cases where now it's, oh, now we've got a business that's worth keeping. Now we're going to, you know, hold Conrad to that. Or how does, how does the dialogue go between you and well, the- Well, that's where the next interesting thing came into play. The two brothers that owned the business had inherited it. The one that it was the principal shareholder really the business was not his love. He was not a natural entrepreneur. And the, and the other brother was a, 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 a wonderful full-charge bookkeeper, but also not very entrepreneurial. Their father had been entrepreneurial. So you go into this next generation, they inherited the business that... Didn't understand the inherent risk that their dad took. They didn't understand. They didn't really understand things. And at this time... We had been talking about me becoming a shareholder, and we started working uh, with the outside accountant. And then the principal shareholder found out that he had cancer. And it was a recurrence of a prior cancer. And that, that resulted in very rapid negotiations to buy the business. Where is that in the timeline of you negotiating with the vendors and the bank and everything? Well, this is about a year later. Okay. Okay. So that, but by that time I'd created great confidence with the bank and with the, uh, uh, with the supplier community and with the employees and with the customers up until that point, I'd never managed or owned anything other than my paper route as a kid. <laughs> you know, I'd never had any employees. So it was kind of baptism by, by fire. When you were going through and essentially saved the business that these guys inherited and created a asset that was worth keeping. I mean, did you just do it because it was a challenge and you just knew it was the right thing to do? I mean, you, at that point, prior to the, the cancer and the conversation with the, you know, the main principal, did you just, they, these were good, honest guys and they, and really understand at this point, this business had just still shown a loss of a quarter of a million dollars. Yeah. And income is the greatest indicator of what a business happens to be worth. Mm -hmm. And so 
the blue sky that was in the business was really me. Okay. And so it really wasn't worth much at this point in time. And what happened is when the primary shareholder ended up with cancer, his greatest concern was because he didn't trust his brother to a, who would have become the dominant shareholder to run the business and take care of his wife and get the value out of it. And so, and the business didn't have a huge amount of value at that point in time because it, it was barely a going entity. And I, I, had no, I had no real money to go buy that business. So we constructed a very unusual transaction. And it was because of the financial modeling that I had done. And remember, I had very little to lose at this point in time. But the crazy thing is I went out and borrowed $10,000 on MasterCard and I bought stock in the business. Hmm. And then I had the business buy the stock of the owners. And the minute that I did that and put it on a four-year note, and the minute that I did that, the business was now technically bankrupt. It had negative net worth. Because of the debt that the owners had put on it because of the debt that the business had incurred to buy their shares. Mm -hmm. So their shares were exchanged with me basically on a promissory note they paid over four years. And then what gave them incentive to do it is I agreed to pay them 30% of profit for the next 10 years. So the crazy thing is if I succeeded, I won, they won, the bank won, and the employees won. And the bank went along with it because the bank's attitude was if Conrad leaves, we're screwed. Okay. The owners went along with it because he was, you know, he, he was sitting there thinking, well, my brother can't run this thing without him. And then my family isn't going to get anything. And hell, I had nothing to lose, but I had this opportunity in front of me. So I was literally the most leveraged corporation in America. A little bit riding on your shoulders, huh? A little bit, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, but it didn't seem like risk to me because I felt like worst case scenario, you go back, you go, you get your job back at Xerox, huh? I had literally all kinds of personal guarantees, but I had nothing to get back up my guarantees. I was in a poker game where I needed to win yep. because I had no, you know, I couldn't, you know. Well, who was it? That, uh, I think it was Chichi Rodriguez or uh, no, it wasn't Chichi, but uh, oh, the Mexican golfer. Pressure's when you got a big bet and no money in your pocket. You know, that's pressure. <laughs> when, you're, when you're playing for a million dollar purse, that's not pressure. Pressure's when you're paying for 50 bucks and you don't have the money to pay the bet. <laughs> and so that's kind of where I was at. But because of this financial modeling, I really began to understand what you know, I could grow the business like crazy and that wasn't going to work because you needed, I would have needed to borrow more money for inventory and receivables. And um, it really boiled down to, you know, I could, I thought, well, I'll, I'll string the vendors out. Well, I found out you can't really do that. What we had to do was control operating expenses and start making money no matter what happened. And so I bought this business and I was levered, you know, we had negative net worth. When my net worth became positive, I had $33 of debt for every dollar of equity. Mm -hmm. And so we had a very detailed business plan that showed modest growth 
it showed asset control, and most importantly, it showed expense control. And the beautiful, the beautiful thing about the distribution business is your ability to operate profitably is not nearly as dependent upon your volume that is controlling your expenses relative to your volume. If you go out and you buy a manufacturing business, or you go buy a golf course, or you go buy something big, you know, you got a fixed nut you got to maintain each month, whether it's, um, so we were able to cash flow the business and we were able to control the assets. And so we started making a little bit of money each month and each month things would get better and better and better. Although it took a long while, but I, you know, created this credibility with the bank and the banking environment was a whole lot different back then. These guys were in so much trouble back then, you know, instead of me being the, uh, they would do whatever I almost would ask them to do. And day after day, our net worth went up. The value of the business went up every single, every day of profitability caused it to go up. So some So months, how many years then from the moment that, you know, you had uh, the first, the, the business finally got in the black and then how, because from the stories that you've told me, you, uh, you've got, you went through some of your own personal issues, which we can get to in a second, but between the moment that you started making money and to the moment that you walked into and kind of your next stage, how many years was that, that uh, the business was operating like that? Well, I owned the business more than 20 years and I'd sit there and tell you when I, ultimately when I sold the business, my debt to equity was uh, two to one. Wow. But every year you'd, you'd mark improvement. And I, I literally walked around, you're going to laugh at this, but that stupid business model that I put together, I had it going out 10 years. And I used to keep it in my wallet because sometimes I was still a very high risk business. But if you see that you're making profit year in and year out and you see that you're getting there. So it was probably two or three years before the business had even positive net worth in it. And the interesting thing that I learned about banks is you got to give them a plan that shows that you're going to pay them back. The truth of the matter is they don't care if they ever get paid back. Because what they sell is borrowed money. They're looking for cash flow too. <laughs> They're looking for cash flow. And so if you can show that your debt to equity is improving, they want to give you more money instead of less money. You know, it, it probably took 20 years before I didn't even really need banks any longer. Or I could go to any bank. Isn't that crazy how banks all of a sudden... You could be completely leveraged, but the mo if you're showing them that you've got profit, they're just going to continue to give you more money. <laughs> well, you know, and one of the crazy stories along the way, I think I've told you this, but uh, before I went into that bank the very first time when we were in big trouble, uh, before I'd actually bought the business, I'd read Iacocca's book about how he had turned Chrysler around. And mm -hmm. there was great, was a great book. There was a chapter in about dealing, there was one bank that could have hold up the whole deal. Well, I wasn't Chrysler, but there was one bank that could have caused the big problem. And I, I went down and told them they needed to lend me more money before I'd even gotten anything turned around. I said, I needed some money to buy some time. And the guy said, well, we're not going to do it. I said, fine, I'll, I'm going to quit the organization. And where would you like me to deliver the inventory in receivables? Because I think I got a better chance of collecting on that than you do. And he looked at me and I could see the blood fall out of his face. 
<laughs> so he went he went from this hard ass to realizing and I learned an old saying when you're a small businessman if you owe the bank $100,000 you're in trouble if you owe them a million they're in trouble <laughs> and so you know and it's just making sure you understand that and so I mean it became a uh, I became kind of a poster child to my vendor I became the poster child to the bank and it was really interesting. There were hiccups along the way, but because I communicated so effectively with them, I got to the point where, you know, I would walk in and say, hey, you know, I need a little bit more money to cover this or cover that. And I became bankable. You know, the whole business about character, and I forget what the five C's of credit are, but, uh, you know, one of them ended up being character. And this was basically, it became a character loan because it, it certainly... I didn't have any credit history. The collateral I had was only valuable to me. It wasn't collateral that would have been good to the bank. I mean, they, what are they going to do with the receivables and inventory? And the minute you don't have inventory, people aren't going to, st the, the receivables aren't collectible when you're no longer a going entity because they don't want to run your business is pretty much what it comes down to. <laughs> no, you know, well, they couldn't. And nope. so, um, so when you got to the point where, when you, you said you sold it, so walk us a little bit through the process of, you know, what was the triggering event that you had in order to be on the, the sell side compared to all the success that you've had over the years? Well, it was pretty interesting. Um, I had assumed like a lot of small business owners do that maybe I was going to pass this business on to my family or my son. And as I'm operating the business, it become very became very apparent to me that he had very little interest in that nor does he necessarily, because he's my son, doesn't necessarily mean he's got the business skills that are required to run a business. So that was one ingredient in it. The second ingredient in it is um, I ended up having some health issues. I ended up having at age 40, um, relatively early in, this is maybe 12 years into my ownership of the business, I had open heart surgery. And it's young for open heart surgery, very young. I had my LAD was 95% blocked and I bounced back from that relatively quickly. And, um, you know, I was still a very young guy and didn't have enough money to really go sell the business at that point in time. Um, eight years later, I had my second, uh, bout with heart disease. And oddly for me, fortunately for me is a lot has happened. Uh, in these last 27 years, but, uh, um, you know, my, my first sur surgery was required because they didn't have stints. And then stint the second time it happened, they put stints in, but they weren't medicated. So they clogged right back up 30 days later. So I'd had at, at age by age 50, I'd had two open heart surgeries and, um, and my industry was consolidating distributors were what well, was a very fragmented industry when I got into it. The uh, top five distributors in the United States only controlled 25% of the business. But that was rapidly changing because instead of it just being bought up by the guy next door, all of a sudden, two foreign companies, European companies had come into the United States and started gobbling up businesses. Um, and I was at a point where uh, kind of that was the second observation. 
And the third observation is I had the world's greatest computer system inside of my business, but I couldn't communicate with any suppliers and I couldn't communicate with any customers. And this is about the time when the internet was really, and, 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 and being connect, connectivity uh, and transparency between customers. And all of a sudden, I would have had to get a modern, a more modern computer system to be able to do those kind of things. So you're talking about another heavy investment in order to in order to get to the next stage. Well, I wasn't even sure it might have required my entire net worth at that point in time to get to that kind of computer system. So kind of three things going on. Health, number one. Family not being interested, number two. And consolidation going on around me. And number three, the, number four, the computer investment. And I'm sitting there thinking... How much sense does this make? So I ended up selling Badger Electric to Viking Electric. It was 10 times my size. I was at about 15 million at this time. They were 150 million. And within a year, they were bought out by a European company called Sonopar. And today, Sonopar is a $25 billion company with 165 companies just like Viking Electric was that are located in 65 countries around the world. That's a massive consolidation right there. Yes. And so, and they are independently held. Um, and so my little business from Oshkosh, Wisconsin, what I define as my world-class popcorn stand <laughs> is, is now part of a, um, big conglomerate. So how, how did you go about valuing that business? So you've got a, you know, some of the challenges of our listeners are going through or might go through is when you're, you know, one tenth of the size of someone else, you got a different skill set that the acquirers got. You've got different um, ways to go about valuing it. And, you know, you've kind of got this dance that goes around. How did you guys go about doing that? Well, it was, it was kind of interesting because I, um, went out and met a number of the, the logical acquirer at that time would be someone that was had shared lines, shared vendors, and would be geographically contiguous. People weren't out, global companies weren't out looking for Badger Electric at that time. And so I went to, because I met some industry contacts, I went and met with both people that would be logical acquirers and people that would not be logical acquirers. And the people that I had formed some friendships with because of industry networks, I'd ask them, well, if I was geographically contiguous to you, how would you value my business? Hmm. And what I found out, one of them was a publicly traded um, company that was in 13 related kind of industries. They were down in, uh, they were headquartered in Orlando, Florida, and they had plumbing dis distributors and electrical distributors and uh, pool supply distributors. And so they were in 13 states with 13 different product lines. And they shared with me the formulas that they used. And they used 13 different formulas. One for each they industry? No, not, no, actually pretty much. And, and their whole thing was They'd pay whatever it took as long as it didn't dilute earnings per share. And other people had formulas based on EBIT. 
And, um, you know, everybody had a slightly, you know, whether they were strategic buyer or whatever they were. And so I didn't come up with any one formula. But the one thing that I figured out real quickly is the common denominator to all of this thing was no one wants to dilute their earnings per share. And they don't want to pay for what they're going to create, you know, the cost that they're going to take out. So, but what you got to do is you got to clean up your business and such. You got to drive the largest EBIT that you can get to. I had a couple of people that offered me a value for my business because I was starting off being dumb thinking, well, it's only worth book value. Well, mm -hmm. it turns out it was worth a lot more than book value. But there, there are formulas that affect every industry, from one times gross profit to four to eight times EBIT. So how did you determine that it was not, or that it was worth more than book value? Well, because I had people, you know, I went out and kind of shopped things. I had people, you know, I'm playing young and dumb. You know, they're, they're, they're you know, you got to figure out they're trying to steal it. And I kind of did this thing on my own, you know, and I was also not necessarily looking to maximize the price as get something that was fair and maybe continue continue on. It's interesting because that's some of the biggest concerns that a lot of the people we know or the listeners have were what is it that what are like kind of the pillars that you determine are the values that you want to continue, right? Whether it's keeping your employees or if it's a certain dollar amount or if it's certain keeping the culture or even self-preservation at that point. Is there some stuff that you put together that you wanted to make sure you accomplished? You know, oddly, I had a company called Cameron and Barkley and that wanted to buy my business because they had a related business that had a location in my town. Graybar was the world's largest uh, ESOP that had electrical supply places. And, you know, I, I just ended up talking to a number of different people over time. And I was talked to them, not necessarily at the point that I was ready to sell the business, but when I started thinking about selling the business. What's the time frame there between when you started thinking and when you actually sold? Probably about three years. Wow. That's very unique. There's not a lot of people that have got that kind of foresight. Well, I was... Um, under no pressure to sell the business, but I started, because I'd had a second open heart surgery, I started thinking, my biggest compelling motivator was, what if something happens to me? Because by that time, I couldn't get enough life insurance to protect my family, and I didn't have a exit strategy, because I didn't have, I could not have done an ESOP, I didn't have the right employees to do that, and I was fortunate in that a buddy of mine actually was uh, um, in the ESOP business. And so he helped people value their businesses and find ways of doing it. And um, so I had kind of some free consulting along the way, but it was just kind of a, and the best way to find out the value was tell them, no, it's not enough, but don't <laughs> tell them what formula they ought to use. I could see you doing that a couple of times. <laughs> I, I had, and to have, other people, you know, be, I, I had a bunch of different people that just would tell them I'm beginning to th think about this process. So it's a combination of friends and professionals that are helping you along the process and at least guiding you and you're bouncing ideas off of people in the industry. So you got enough time to kind of educate yourself. 
Yeah, and go talk to people about, you know, I have an accounting background. I had an idea what it might be, uh, what it might be worth. And, you know, there's formulas that are out there. And so you're bouncing around ideas off a bunch of people. You got time to educate yourself and you kind of have an idea what it's worth and some. And so I had a buddy that also was somewhat geographically contiguous to us, but he ran an Allen Bradley business. And they, uh, they were an ESOP down in uh, Iowa. And he was interested in doing it, but the lines didn't line up. So he really sat down and helped me figure it out, kind of gave me an idea of what he would offer. If you could have done the deal. He couldn't do the deal because we didn't have the alignment with manufacturers. And so that is a absolute gold nugget there because not a lot of people go through the process of potentially selling and then have that person that did the test run on them to help them consult. I mean, that's, that's huge. Yeah. I mean, it was just partly because of my financial background. I understood some of this stuff and partly because I didn't have a sense of urgency. I'm, I'm building net worth every day. I'm making money every day. The business is getting healthier every day. That's a time that you want to sell a business, not when all hell is, you know, broken up. I, mm -hmm. I sold I sold the business back in ninety uh, nine, and things were still rocking and rolling and showing growth. I mean, it's simple when you want to show sell a business is when sales are going up, when profits are going up, when your leverage is going down. So how did how did you line up with uh, with Viking then? Well, oddly, they pursued me, and. I had about three or four people that wanted to buy the business, which is a good position to be in. And, yeah. literally, and literally, the reason that I sold to them is it just felt better than the other deals. How would it uh, line up with the different um, price points? Similar. Basically, you know, I'm not sure I maximized the value. I probably, you know, in retrospect, I wasn't, I never did find the right person to represent me. And my goal was not necessarily to maximize down to the last dollar. What were some of the other important factors that you're looking at? One of the factors was the people that helped me build this business. I didn't want anybody to lose jobs. Okay. And I literally thought that some of them would lose their jobs. I had a HR person and I thought, well, she'll be gone. Uh, I had an IT guy and I thought, well, he'll be gone. And but the core people, I did not want them to get wiped out and this be, but because we were geographically contiguous and basically, but not, and I sold to a Minneapolis company, I was located 300 miles away. Turns out that my people were so qualified that that HR person from 18 years ago and that IT person still worked for Viking to this day. Oh, does that? How does that make you feel? Well, uh, good, obviously. And people that began their career with me 25 and 30 years ago are literally no one lost their job as a result of this thing. That is awesome. You know, I kind of joke that I was the only one that lost my job, and that was only <laughs> because I was bullheaded and didn't want to do what they wanted me to do right away. And ultimately, I rejoined them, and I've been with them for ten years now. But I, 
I had a stint in there when I went out and uh, started, uh, you know, did nothing for a little bit of time and then decided I needed, after about three weeks, I became bored and started another business. Three weeks, you didn't even last a month. <laughs> I did not last a month. And because uh, I was too young, but I'd accomplished my number one objective was take care of my family and not have a debacle if something would have happened to me. Uh, so that was the first objective. Second objective was to look out for my employees. And in fact, I took 10% of my purchase price and put it into, um, got that grossed up and got them to deliver that to my key people over a three-year period, a stay pay package. 10% of the, the price that I sold for, we put in stay pay packages for That's really key, awesome. some key people and uh, so that Instead of getting pissed off that I sold, they had incentive to stay. So it was good for, uh, so they grossed it up and made it even more than the 10% that we were talking about. So it was, there were a lot of good elements to it, but I ended up selling to someone that where the culture matched up and we weren't going to be this financial sale. The guy wanted to get into that marketplace and some of our key vendors didn't match up. Well, what happened is he ended up, he had some branches. His closest branch to me was in Wausau, which was about 90 miles away, and they were GE. After he bought my business, he ended up dropping GE in that location and taking on Square D. And now they've bought other Square D businesses out of Milwaukee. And it was a, so it became a strategic acquisition for him not just a financial one. It lined up with a vendor that made more sense for him over in Wisconsin and actually allowed him to expand further. So the, when after you sell and the deal is done and the, the migration has sort of happened, that three weeks, explain a little bit about the emotions that you went through. I don't know that the emotions have ever stopped. You know, <laughs> I, I was living my dream um, and I would sit there and tell you, I think that Part of what got to me is most people that had, um, you know, I, I think I had some depression going on after the surgeries and kind of a, you know, had I known I was going to live this long, I don't think I'd have sold the business, even though I don't regret it. But all of a sudden I had a couple of million dollars and hell, I, I almost never had, and I was almost living paycheck to paycheck when I was the business owner. Uh, because everything was in my business. And the, the next thing you got to do is now, what the hell do you do with this money? Especially when you don't know how long you're going to live. <laughs> right. And so some, some of it was, well, now I got this money and don't know how long I'm going to go live. I started investing in some good times. <laughs> That's a great investment. <laughs> yes. Uh, I think you have quoted it to me. You've lived two bucket lists, I think is what you've said, right? Oh, I've completed 10 of them. <laughs> How many guys that you know after open heart surgery have skied in the Alps or became pilots and landed at O'Hare or <laughs> Boston Logan in a single engine plane or, you know, a number of other things. Um, uh, but I also um, needed something to do when you, especially when you do it young, you know, after a couple of weeks, your buddies are getting pissed off at you. You're calling them up and saying, hey, where are we going for lunch? You know, two most important questions <laughs> became, who am I going to lunch with today and then where? 
well, they're still working. You know, and what time could, can you have your first beer, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, and so all of a sudden, I needed. I found out I needed something to do. Having the money without something to do, and so, and that's another realization that I came to is, boy, you better be careful when you go sell your business, because somehow or other, I thought because I've been successful running a business, somebody's going to swoop in and they're going to give me something else to go turn around. And when you have a good business, the thought that you're going to sell it and do something different, well, that's not as easy to realize as, uh, you know, it's not only the, you, you, there's an intersection if you're successful in business. And it's the intersection of ability and opportunity. And our ability continues to go with us, but finding the right opportunity is sometimes rare. And the other thing that I found out is I tried some kind of single one-man band businesses consulting uh, primarily. And when I was out consulting, I wasn't generating new sales leads. And when I was generating leads, I wasn't generating revenue. And so it's like you're kind of, um, and I had no one to delegate to. And I was really good at the big picture. But some of the small details that I used to delegate, I wasn't so hot at. So being the one-man band business was not... Uh, Hard to play all instruments at once. It's, it's really... <laughs> I was a good band conductor, but not much of a tuba player. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. You know, and so, you know, fortunately for me, when I kind of decided, got tired of this consulting and screwing around, I called the people that I sold the business to and said, I'd like to get back in. And... They offered me a job running one of their divisions, and they allowed for 10 years, they allowed me to live under the illusion that I own that piece of the business. And it was the most profitable piece of their business after I got a hold of it. And the business I sold them was the second most profitable piece of the business. That's something to be proud of. That's awesome. Yeah. And so it, uh, it worked out well. Well, you've learned a lot of good lessons that have really, I mean, there's just so many things in here. I mean, as far as having the the ability and the opportunity to go out and continue to challenge yourself and continue to surround yourself with all the good people is uh, it's a pretty cool deal. I enjoyed what I did. I enjoyed being a business owner. I enjoyed the recognition that you get with success. I enjoyed helping people inside of their businesses. You know, we always kind of took a consulting approach to um, solving problems for folks as opposed to trying to sell them something, you know, it's, uh, I don't know what the, at 67, I don't know what the next act is going to be. Some of it, you got to figure out on your own. Well, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast, Conrad. I very much appreciate it. You had a lot of good nuggets for, for our listeners. Well, good. Good.